Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, November 7th, 2022. It's been 3,176 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 257 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world, Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the Russian Navy's presence in the Black Sea has become irrelevant, with missile carriers reluctant to patrol beyond the immediate coast of Sevastopol. Second, we assess terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, and are concerned that a large wave is about to begin due to reduced operational tempo across most front lines. Simply put, it has become too quiet. Third, we assess that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and is only capable of mounting effective defensive operations. Fourth, we maintain that the Russian Ministry of Defense uses recently mobilized troops for disorganized ad hoc attacks wasting military resources on pointless offensive operations. Fifth, we maintain that the so-called evacuations in Kherson are part of an organized genocide against the Ukrainian people. Sixth, we maintain that Russian forces will retreat from the west bank of the Dnipro over the next three to seven weeks. Seventh, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Eighth, we maintain that Rasputitsa will continue to slow down combat operations for both belligerents and further assess that winter weather will arrive in areas such as Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk in the coming weeks. Ninth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Tenth, we assess that the mobilization of 300,000 troops has not significantly improved Russian combat strength and exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems within the Russian Federation. And finally, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat for an invasion of western Ukraine, but we now assess the possibility has pushed further out to the next 60 to 90 days. Let's get some regional updates and, since it's a Monday, check in with both belligerents' objectives. Starting, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian objective is to execute a controlled withdrawal of collaborators, government officials, military leaders, and experienced troops while rotating Mobix to the front, hold existing defensive lines, protect the Novokohovka ground line of communication, 
called a G-lock, that's a supply line, and restrict insurgent activity. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv. The Russian Ministry of Defense made an unsupported claim that Ukrainian troops attacked in force Russian positions near Pyatikhatki and Sublokivka, while more reliable Russian mill bloggers reported reconnaissance units from both belligerents probing the lines in the same area. A Russian mill blogger claimed a concentration of Ukrainian equipment was attacked by artillery in Davidi Brid. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ukrainian positions were shelled in the town. The GSAFU also reported that Russian forces shelled Ukrainian positions in Pravdine. We maintain that the region west of Kherson is a no-man's land and did not adjust the map. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that the Ukrainian Air Force carried out two airstrikes and ground forces executed 147 fire missions. Targets included three ammunition depots in the Bereslav and Kherson rayons. A quick reminder here, a rayon is an administrative area similar to a county or a parish. Russian troops and equipment crossing the Nova Kahovka Dam were attacked by rockets fired by HIMARS, again, with Russian sources claiming that one of the floodgates was damaged in the attack, without any evidence. The area that was struck was the gateway lock, meant for ships and barges to pass through the dam before being filled with gravel by Russian combat engineers to create a temporary bridge. Ukrainian officials confirmed that the Kristi Prudy Hotel in Kahovka was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS on November 6th, with up to 200 Russian service members inside at the time of the attack. We mentioned a video recorded after the attack on yesterday's episode and linked to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Power was knocked out in Bereslav, and with it, water and sewer service. A half kilometer of power lines were destroyed, with both belligerents accusing the other of committing sabotage. Ukrainian officials stated that power could not be restored until after the area was liberated due to a lack of equipment and the security situation in the area. Civilians in Bereslav were given until November 10th to evacuate voluntarily, otherwise they will face mandatory deportation and filtration in Russian-controlled Crimea. Forced deportations continued in Kachovka and are now happening on a large scale on the west bank of the Dnipro River. The hospital equipment in Novokachovka has been looted and taken to Russian-occupied Crimea. Earlier claims by Kherson deputy mayor, conspiracy theory enthusiast and collaborator Kirill Stremusov that ferries were closed to civilians were untrue. Ridovka shared a video of civilians being loaded onto a ferry for deportation, carrying only small suitcases to hold their belongings, as reported by Ukrainian sources. Shoppers in the Fabrika Mall were told to evacuate due to a, quote, emergency situation at the facility, end quote. It was unclear what the emergency was, and the order was not given during or just before attacks in the area. Later in the day, it was reported that power was knocked out across all of Kherson. Russian forces claimed the outage was caused by a Ukrainian artillery strike on electrical infrastructure, and residents have not been provided with an estimate for when service will be restored. Cellular and internet service remain spotty across all of Kherson, with weak cell service and occasional internet access available in some areas depending on the provider, time of day, and location. 
There continues to be no internet or cellular service in central Kherson, while Russian internet provider Viner Telecom was available in parts of the city, but speed was limited to one megabyte. Russian state television broadcasts have ended in Kherson, likely because broadcast equipment and the engineers that operate it were removed. There are increasing signs that Russian forces intend to evacuate from the west bank of the Dnipro in a controlled withdrawal. Russian forces are building three defensive lines along the east bank of the Dnipro following Russian Federation military doctrine. The first line runs along the banks of the Dnipro, with the second echelon 5 to 10 kilometers deep. This is the same defensive structure Russia created in Kharkiv and northern Kherson, where a swift advance of 10 or more kilometers pierces the rear echelon, overrunning artillery positions. The third echelon is 20 to 25 kilometers behind the second and would house reserve forces and air defenses. Nine months into the war, the Russian Ministry of Defense continues to be unwilling to change and adapt tactics to address the NATO-based maneuver warfare Ukraine uses. It is unlikely this three-layer defense will work after three tries, and assumes that Ukraine will attempt an amphibious crossing along the Dnipro versus advancing through Zaporizhia and coming in behind the third line of defense. And in Mykolaiv, well, it was pretty quiet. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, break civilian will with continued terror attacks and the destruction of electrical, natural gas and water infrastructure, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and protect civilians. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, remains unchanged. The Russian MOD claimed that Ukrainian forces shelled Enerhodar in areas, quote, adjacent to ZNPP without evidence. The MOD has repeatedly claimed attacks have been made on the facility, which the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has indirectly dismissed. There is still no information on the Enerhoatam employee that was kidnapped four weeks ago and is believed to be in Russian custody. Enerhoatam has requested that plant operators create a plan by November 9th on how they would handle the destruction of the Novokokhovka Dam. ZNPP receives its cooling water from the Kohovka Reservoir, and the dam's destruction could endanger the critical water supply. Enerhoatam has only requested a contingency plan be prepared, and officials did not indicate they believed the plant or dam was in immediate danger. The city of Zaporizhia was hit by rockets, but it was unclear if they were Uragan, Tornado, S-300, or Iskander-M. Civilian infrastructure was targeted, and a civilian was killed in the attack. Markanets was attacked by Grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. The attack was lighter than in previous weeks, and no serious damage or injuries were reported. Otherwise, there was only sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Juliapola, to Orekhiv, to Sherpaki. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. The Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, 
and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. Multiple Russian mill bloggers have reported that the Russian offensive to capture Pavlivka has failed to achieve its objectives, with Rybar writing that fighting has, quote, acquired a positional character, end quote. The GSAFU reported that fighting continued in the area. Multiple reports from Russian sources confirmed that losses have been catastrophic. One mill blogger wrote that combat didn't even look like a battle, quote, where fighters stand knee-deep in the blood and mud of their wounded comrades, end quote. Mobics gathered in clusters on the battlefield, and troop rotations were done in the open during daylight hours, with soldiers waiting around as if they were at a bus stop. They complained that requests for artillery support went unanswered, and when artillery was fired, it was 500 to 750 meters off from the requested target. In contrast, they called Ukrainian artillery accuracy, quote, amazing and fast. They reported that the mud is drying up, but temperatures are falling close to zero, or 32 degrees if you prefer Fahrenheit, and the fields are full of mice eating everything. Surviving soldiers with the 155th Marine Brigade of the Russian Pacific Fleet wrote an open letter to the Primorsky Krai Federal District Governor Oleg Nikolaevich, reporting catastrophic losses and terrible conditions, writing, quote, Once again, we were thrown into an incomprehensible offensive by General Muradov and his fellow countryman Akhmedov, in order for Muradov to earn bonuses over Gerasimov and Akhmedov. Muradov promised a hero of Russia. As a result, we and the Marines of Kamchatka are advancing on Pavlivka. As a result of the carefully planned offensive by the great generals, we lost about 300 people in four days, killed, wounded, and missing. End quote. They added that that was only the losses among the 155th, and that other units had suffered equally devastating losses. Russian naval infantry is considered to be part of the elite military units of the Russian Federation, and the losses would be among some of the more experienced and loyal soldiers. Russian propagandist Alexander Slotkov amplified the open letter and asked for the prosecutor general's office to investigate what went wrong at Pavlivka. Unconfirmed reports claimed that the Russian 40th Naval Infantry Brigade suffered similar losses. Attempts by the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, to advance into Novobakhmutivka also failed, with fighting becoming positional and Russian troops digging in defensive lines east of the town. The GSAFU reported that fighting continued on the eastern edge of Marinka, while Russian sources claimed no change in the situation. There was positional fighting between the DNR militia and Ukrainian forces in Krasnohorivka, Nevilske, Pervomaiske, Vodyana, and Avdivka. There were no changes in the line of conflict. A recently recorded video showed Russian forces dropping IEDs from a consumer drone on Ukrainian positions in Pervomaiske, with questionable results. The DNR released a video showing Chechen-grade fake combat operations near the international airport in Vesele. I have to say, their production value is getting a lot better. Another video showed artillery fire on the eastern parts of Avdivka. 
The DNR shared a video showing the results of a rocket attack by HIMARS on an industrial area that housed a shoe and furniture factory. The Railway Administration building in the center of Donetsk was likely struck by rockets fired by HIMARS, destroying at least the top three floors and setting the building on fire. The attack occurred on Sunday night while the building was unoccupied. Artillery strikes on Miralna and Yakovlivka knocked out power and heat to 3,291 households located on the front lines. Ukrainian forces completed 114 fire missions on the occupied territories. Insurgents in Mariupol continue to share videos of Russian military convoys carrying troops and ammunition, reporting a lot of activity toward Donetsk. After a brief improvement that we reported yesterday, traffic is once again backed up at the Russian border crossing at Uspenka. It remains unclear what exactly is causing the flow of people to leave the Ukrainian-occupied territories into Russia. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances toward Luhansk, and capture Bakhmut Solidar. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar, push into the Luhansk oblast, and minimize civilian casualties. It was a quiet day around Solidar and Bakhmut. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, advanced into the village of Ivangrad on November 5th after weeks of fighting. Positional fighting continued east of Bakhmut and Solidar, with no change in the situation. Battlefield conditions east of Bakhmut near the E-40 highway remain challenging and have devolved into trench warfare. Ukrainian troops destroyed a Russian BMP infantry fighting vehicle, or IFV, with troops on top, along the Bakhmut front using the Stugna P anti-tank guide munition, or ATGM. Russian forces reportedly suffered significant losses during a failed advance on Mayorsk on November 5th, suffering up to 150 casualties, killed or wounded. The GSAFU reported a Russian attack on Yampil was repelled. This was likely a DRG sabotage or reconnaissance unit that moved through the forests from Dibrova and did not represent a new offensive. Russian forces have used DRG groups to strike deep behind Ukrainian lines in this region since August. Russian sources made no mention of an advance in this direction. In Luhansk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, advance on Svatova, Kremina, and Lusychansk, and support insurgents. Russian forces repeated their attacks on Bilohorivka, in Luhansk, without success. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar reported that rockets fired by HIMARS struck Russian positions in Alchevsk and Khadivka. Rybar has accurately reported attacks occurring deep behind the line of conflict, and we thank them for the poor operational security. A hotel in Alchevsk was hit by two rockets, destroying two buildings. Video provided by Russian sources showed a few pieces of military equipment on the ground in the debris. Chechen forces couldn't help themselves and produced an eight-minute-long video bravely declaring their presence on the so-called front. The front turned out to be Lusychansk, about 10 kilometers to the nearest fighting. The video was pretty killer, though. Due to their terrible OPSEC, which Akhmat really truly excels at, they had a close encounter of the HIMARS kind. 
Approximately 30 new members of the TikTok brigade lasted 48 hours in Ukraine before being deplatformed, as it were. They were issued a lifetime ban. To be clear, they received a Code 200 discharge. To be clearer, they did not survive. Russian forces have started building tent cities to house arriving Mobiks in Kremina, Svatova, and Starobilsk. The tents are housing undertrained forces who have taken to foraging and looting for building materials, warm clothes, and food. Regular Russian troops are occupying homes, like with furniture and doors, in Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. Russian forces are accused of starting mass filtration of residents in Borivska and Shedresheve. Russian Territorial Guard is going house to house, searching homes and taking phones, and have removed at least 30 residents of Borivska with reports of torture. Nighttime temperatures are falling below freezing in many areas of Luhansk, and the ground is starting to get harder. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. The Russian objective is to lock military resources in place, launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services, and break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks, remember those are supply lines, into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. Videos showed Ukrainian artillery firing on Russian armor in eastern Yakhidne on the Kharkiv-Luhansk administrative border. We do link to the video, just as we do with most videos we reference, in our full situation report on Patreon. There were no other credible reports of fighting in the region, with most Russian mill bloggers completely ignoring claims by the Russian MOD. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, the Russian objective is exactly the same, to lock Ukrainian military resources into place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale and maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water, and medical services. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Vorozhva Hromada was struck by 72 artillery shells and grad rockets fired by MLRS targeting residential areas. There is more information on this in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. In the Cherniv Oblast, Russian forces shelled the town of Chai from across the border. There were no reports of significant damage or casualties. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region. On February 2nd, the Russian Navy positioned the missile cruiser Varyag and the anti-submarine ship Admiral Tributes of the Pacific Fleet in the Mediterranean to reposition the vessels in the Black Sea. The Turkish government denied the request and the vessels remained at sea for nine months. On November 6th, both ships were spotted off the coast of Singapore, still displaying their invasion markings of V and Z. The vessels are returning to their home port in Vladivostok. The Black Sea Fleet remains largely at port, with no missile-carrying ships on patrol. 
In western and central Ukraine, the Russian objective is to launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to maximize casualties by deprivation of heat, water and medical services, and to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to deter attacks and protect civilian lives. Ukrainian military officer Valery Markus created a stir after he posted on his Telegram channel, quote, For those who live in the northwestern part of the Rivne Oblast and the northeastern Volyn Oblast, I recommend that you go somewhere to rest in the coming month. If everything goes well, you will return. End quote. The governors of the Rivne and Volyn Oblasts responded quickly, writing that the situation on the Belarus border was, quote, calm, and that, quote, our fighters are fully prepared and in good morale, end quote. We maintain our assessment that a Russian advance toward Rivne from Belarus is possible within 60 to 90 days, but is not a certainty. We agree with the Ukrainian assessment that no evidence shows Belarusian or Russian troops are planning any significant military action in the short term. There hasn't been any additional information released about the November 5th grenade attack on a playground in Rivne that hospitalized four, including a child. Moving on to the Russian front, Bilgorod Oblast Governor Vyacheslav Gladkov said that an industrial facility in the Graivaransky area was shelled by Ukrainian forces, setting an industrial tank full of solvents on fire. No injuries were reported. In Veregovka, Russian troops were digging defensive trenches near the former Russian-Ukrainian border crossing. Repair work on the Kerch Bridge continues to take longer than expected, with the roadway reopening of two lanes pushed back to December 20th. The Russian Ministry of Defense originally claimed that the lanes adjacent to the ones that collapsed were serviceable just hours after the attack, and then reported the bridge would reopen by December 1st. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukraine's power grid operator Ukrenerho reported that the nation was facing a 32% deficit in electrical generation on Monday and that additional blackouts would be required in Kyiv, Cherkasy, Poltava, Cherniv, Sumy, Zhitomir, and Kharkiv oblasts. Extensive rolling blackouts could start as early as 6 a.m. Kyiv time and continue through the day to balance the electrical load. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reported 4.5 million people still do not have electrical power, mostly in the Kyiv oblast. Kirillo Timoshenko, deputy head of the Office of the President, said the situation with the electrical supply in Kyiv was difficult but remained under control. Vitaly Klitschko, mayor of Kyiv, called upon residents to stock up on drinking water, food and warm clothing in the event the city was to have an extended total blackout. He also recommended residents consider temporarily moving out of the city. Klitschko accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of leading a genocide, saying during a TV interview, quote, Putin doesn't need us Ukrainians. He needs territory. He needs Ukraine without us. End quote. City officials are setting up a thousand warming centers, but they can only accommodate one million people, which is only a third of Kyiv's population. The Moldovan government asked for Western support to improve air defenses after Russian missiles passed through the nation's airspace twice in the last two weeks. Hungarian airline Wizair announced it was suspending service at the airport in Chisinau due to safety concerns. 
Moldovan officials have been steadfast in wanting the Russian, quote, peacekeeper mission in Transnistria to leave, while also wanting to maintain a neutral stance and not join NATO. Moldova's entire military budget is $30 million, which does not provide sufficient funds for basic air defense. Ukrainian forces' efforts to improve NATO-provided equipment are paying dividends. Video emerged of a British-donated Mastiff mine-resistant armor-protected vehicle that an RPG had struck. The vehicle had been up-armored, including slat protection. The RPG dented the vehicle and pierced the outer metal, but didn't penetrate the hull. Patriarch Kirill, an alleged FSB agent and the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, claimed that Russia faced an existential threat on Sunday during his sermon. He also claimed that forces outside Russia were working to destabilize the government to create internal conflict. It was a surprising claim admitting that unrest is growing over the special military operation and impacting Russian society. Speaking of internal conflict, let's talk about Russian mobilization. The Russian military finally recognized the missing sailors of the missile cruiser Moskva that were listed as missing in action as deceased. Russian officials claim 27 remained missing after the April sinking of the Black Sea Fleet's flagship, with outsiders claiming the number is a 5- to 8-fold undercount. Changing the status to killed in action will theoretically enable family members to receive survivor benefits. Residents of the Donetsk People's Republic recorded a video appeal to Russian President Putin for the return of mobilized college students, who then claimed they were sent to the front illegally, were undertrained and ill-equipped. The Russian Ministry of Defense released a staged video of Mobix receiving combat training in Siberia, stating, quote, the enemy has no chance, end quote, and that the video showed reconnaissance groups conducting exercises. The loss of military trainers, who were sent to the front line starting in April, has devastated the quality of Russian troops. The video shows instructors not correcting Mobix, who consistently extended their gun barrels through windows to fire. This practice exposes a soldier's location by making the barrel and muzzle flash readily visible outside buildings. A brigade of Russian Mobix sent to Belarus for training, living in tents with poor sanitary facilities, has, to the surprise of absolutely no one, become sick. The troops have been hit with a variety of respiratory diseases, including bronchitis and pneumonia. Doctors and hospitals in Belarus have become overwhelmed by the number of sick soldiers and have requested the Russian Ministry of Defense send medical personnel. Quick sidebar here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there like a super contagious respiratory disease going around right now? I feel like I heard something about that somewhere. Mikhail Vasilyev, a Russian Orthodox Church priest who advocated for women to have more children so the pain of losing one to future wars would be less painful, got a first-class ticket to meet God personally to discuss his views on war and being fruitful and multiplying. And by that I mean Vasilyev was killed on November 6th on the front lines in Ukraine, quote, while carrying out pastoral duties, end quote. Okay, before you write that angry email or cancel your subscription, keep listening, okay? The commentary is genuinely well-earned. So, during a TV interview, when asked about a woman hiding her son from mobilization, 
Vasiliev said, quote, The Lord has allowed each woman to give birth to many children. And if a woman, fulfilling this commandment to be fruitful and multiply, refused to use artificial pregnancy termination methods, he means like birth control, in the widest sense, then obviously she would have more than one child, and therefore she would not find it so painful and terrifying to part with her child. End quote. Yeah, he said that out loud. Tell me you've never given birth without telling me you've never given birth. There's a note here from David, and I'm, I'm just going to read it verbatim, okay? Quote, I own this comment. No one else on the team. I hate hypocrisy. There is nothing on this planet I hate more than hypocrisy. Religious leaders advocating for parents to give birth to cannon fodder for misguided future wars is the height of hypocrisy. People that twist religion for their own political gain are a special kind of awful. I studied religion for four years, one year covering the New Testament. Nowhere in the Bible did Jesus say, give birth to cannon fodder. But in Matthew 26.52, Jesus did say, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. End quote. Yevgeny Prigozhin continues to expand his footprint and image in the Russian sphere after years of preferring to remain in the shadows. He announced that PMC Wagner would be opening up training centers in the Kursk and Bilgorod oblasts in another slap in the face to Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. Prigozhin's proposal is quite bizarre, even by Russian standards, creating and deploying very part-time militias. Prigozhin announced, quote, If you own a small factory that employs a hundred people, and fifty of them are mature males, then 25% should be serving in the trenches, and 75% should continue doing their jobs. And so it goes, one week in the trenches, three weeks at home and work. End quote. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, but seriously, the average lifespan of a Wagner penal unit mercenary is nine days, and a regular mercenary is 21 days. Those are not great odds, going to war for a week and then returning to the factory for three weeks until your luck runs out? Okay, grown-up assessment here. This scheme implies that Wagner is facing growing personnel shortages and is trying to balance the Russian economy, which is feeling the pinch of a nine-month brain drain. Russia, are you okay? This isn't really the plan, is it? Is it? In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. In the Sumi Oblast, one woman was killed and her neighbor injured when an artillery shell landed in their yard. The 62-year-old woman was in her garden when the artillery attack started on her village, and she was killed instantly by shrapnel. In Mariupol, Russian occupiers destroyed the Milan mural, an incredible painting by Ukrainian artist Sasha Kurban on the side of a five-story building. They covered it up in brown paint that resembles Ukrainian digital camouflage, making future restoration impossible. The Ministry of Health of Ukraine reported that in the first eight months of the war, over 1,100 medical establishments were damaged, and among those, 
144 were completely destroyed. The worst impacted region was the Kharkiv Oblast, with 249 facilities damaged or destroyed. Ukrainian engineers have built a new bridge that crosses the Siversky Donets near Izium, less than two months after the city was liberated. Engineers are now working to replace the Primorsky-Martova bridge along the east bank of the Pechny Reservoir. In Russian-occupied Horlivka, frustrated residents waited in long lines to get drinking water at the cathedral, with officials eventually having to turn away the crowd because there were too many people. In geopolitical news, the Washington Post reported that the United States is pressuring Ukraine to show it's open to negotiating with Russia, at least publicly. An official who wanted to remain anonymous said, quote, Ukraine fatigue is real for some of our partners, end quote. United States officials readily admit that the Kremlin has no interest in brokering a peace deal, but believes there is a need to keep up appearances. The Wall Street Journal reported that United States President Joe Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has been in confidential talks with President Putin's aide, Yuri Ushakov, and the Russian Security Council secretary, Mykola Patrushev, for months. Talks have been held to prevent further escalation, signal intent, and keep communication channels open. It was reported that talks have not included negotiating on behalf of Ukraine or attempting to reach a peace settlement. Russian President Putin appears to be moving to end his support of the Taliban, just weeks after his nation cut an energy deal with Kabul. Putin uninvited the Taliban for upcoming meetings in Afghanistan and accused the group of being created by and a puppet of the United States. Civil unrest in Moldova is entering its third month, with 50,000 protesters marching through Kisinau calling for the resignation of President Maya Sandu. Kremlin watchers claim the Russian FSB is behind the protests in the hopes of installing a pro-Russian government in Europe's poorest nation. The Moldovan economy is in crisis, with an inflation rate of 35 percent and rolling blackouts due to energy cuts by Gazprom, which is also impacting the breakaway republic of Transnistria. India's Minister of External Affairs, S. Jai Shankar, will be in Moscow for two days of meetings with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, and Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Trade and Industry, Denis Mantrov. It is the first visit by Jai Shankar since Russia began its wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. An agenda has not been published, but the Politico believes that discussion on energy imports will be on the table. In October 2022, Russia became India's largest supplier of crude oil. United States Senator Rick Scott, a Republican from Florida, backed up Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, saying he expects the United States Republican Party, also known as the GOP, to continue to support Ukraine. In an interview on the TV show Meet the Press, Scott said, quote, If we don't stop, if we don't continue to help Ukraine the right way, then they're, meaning Russia, going to be in Poland or some other country where we will be at war, end quote. The self-proclaimed leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, complained about Kyiv imposing sanctions against his nation and the treatment he received from President Zelensky. White House insiders speaking off the record claimed it was part of a larger strategy to maintain support for Kyiv by at least publicly showing a desire to talk to Moscow. In a speech, Lukashenko said, quote, You saw my position regarding Ukraine and what I didn't do there. 
and the first to impose sanctions against us was Kiev, Volodymyr Zelensky, whom I treated like my own child. And I did that and this and asked Russia, I don't even want to say here. There are sanctions against us? Why? End quote. Do, do, do we really need to break it down? Stephen Feldstein, a senior fellow in the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Think Tank, reported that over a hundred kamikaze drones are in development, and the world is unprepared for this proliferation. Feldstein warned, quote, Many of the new entrants pay scant regard to liberal norms or international humanitarian law. End quote. Some assessment here. We have expressed concern about the expanding role that drones are playing in conflicts around the world, and the pace of technological advance in Ukraine that rivals the advances in combat aviation from 1914 to 1918 during World War I. Drones have proven to be a powerful force multiplier that provides reduced risk for operators and is affordable to produce. As capabilities rapidly expand and artificial intelligence evolves, ethical questions should be asked now not in 20 years. In economic news, the ruble is opening the week slightly improved, climbing back to an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices are trending lower for the Monday morning opening, with WTI crude trading at $91 a barrel and Brent at $97. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market is also opening lower at $2.71 a gallon, or 72 cents a liter. Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 contracts were down, trading at 112 euros per megawatt hour. January 2023 contracts were also down, falling to 120 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures continue to decline as grain shipments continue out of Ukraine. March 2022 contracts were trading at $8.41 a bushel. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.